Open our eyes, open our ears, and our hearts to see and hear and to receive you, O glorious one. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So it's been a difficult week in the Holloway home. Uh, Lynn and I just closed on selling our house Tuesday, which marks our 13th move in 16 years of marriage. Um, We don't quite have a home to move into yet, so all of our things were shoved into a storage unit, and we're staying with Lynn's mother, who lives in across the bay in Westmobile for the time being. And uh, we're, by the way, we're not moving away from the area. We're we're just trying to find a place up near Spanish Fort, kind of closer to I-10. We do a lot of travel back and forth uh, to Mobile each week. But the thing is, is that there are no words in the English language that are strong enough to convey the deep loathing that I have felt this past week for moving. And I think, you all know, I mean, we can all let out a collective groan for even the thought of moving. Um, But there are uh, good things that often come from a move, right? Right? Yeah, just... Just nod your head and say, yes, there are good things that come from a move, Um, both anticipated and unanticipated good things. And uh, we've had that with every move we've made in in our family, Um, even at times when we felt like there might not be a lot of good things, there were just really amazing uh, blessings that came out of it. But it's also been a practice in difficult decision-making. Each move kind of is that. Should we or shouldn't we? Should we sell or should we buy? Should we sell and rent? Or, you know, should we move here and not there? Here for the kids or there for our jobs? Take this opportunity or stay put? And and on and on. And a lot of you know the drill. And the thing is, is that I can genuinely look back to most decisions, especially around moving, and see where an enormous amount of good and right and beautiful things came out of them. Think about a big decision that you've made in your life. Um, It can be a move, but maybe a career change, maybe starting a family or um, pursuing a a passion project or whatever it is. What if at the time that you faced this decision that you had been given the opportunity to see or or to get a glimpse of how things would end? What would it change for you? So my guess, and, and remember, I'm talking about decisions that changed your life for the better. My guess is that it would have strengthened your resolve, right? Maybe you weren't so certain then, but if there had been this sort of vision in which you could see the beautiful and good and right and, and lovely things that were in store for you, that you would have just jumped headfirst into whatever that decision was. It would have carried you along. You would have persevered. It's like the moment that athletes win or succeed at the highest level of their sport and, you know, they turn to the interviewer and say, I've imagined this my entire life since I was a kid. And I don't know about you, but when I hear that, when I hear someone say that, I just think about all of the hurdles that they had to overcome, all of the difficult decisions that had to be made in the midst of that to get them to where they are today on the podium. The transfiguration, among many of the other things that we could say about it. I mean, we, we could really fill up a months-long series just on the transfiguration. So I, I'm not going to get into all of it, but I just I do want to focus in on one thing. 
that it was a glimpse of glory that would sustain Peter, James, and John to finish their race well. And I have to imagine that this experience on the mountain with Jesus informed their decisions for the rest of their lives. And really, we don't have to read that far into the beginning of the the early church to to know that they faced some terribly difficult decisions and and circumstances in in, in the midst of persecution. They stood strong, they persevered, they were carried along. So I just want to look at some of the details around the transfiguration. Let's just explore this a little bit together. Um, Jesus has elected here to take three sleepy disciples, Peter, James, and John, up the mountain to pray. Not the last time, by the way, that Jesus takes three sleepy disciples with him to pray. And Luke says that as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And then Moses and Elijah appeared in conversation with Jesus. Moses, you might remember, met and spoke with God on Mount Horeb. Uh, Elijah, also Mount Horeb, met and spoke with God. Moses and Elijah were representatives of the law, Moses and the prophets, Elijah. There's this uh, sort of theme or focus on the facial change as well with Moses Uh, His face was shining as he came down from the mountain with Elijah after he heard the, you remember in the cave, he heard the still small voice, the whisper, and he went, he covered his face and went to the mouth of the cave and he spoke with God. And so here is Jesus. The appearance of his face was altered. And yet we do have this sense that where Elijah covered his face and and Moses' face was transformed on the outside, it is something happening within Jesus that alters him. This isn't something coming from out. This is something coming from within. God made man in this fully bright radiance and glory in conversation with Moses and Elijah. God appearing in glory with these men who had once so powerfully met with him on the mountain. In other words, This wasn't their first conversation with him. Do y'all realize that? How amazing that is? And and this history of their encounters had shaped the faith of these Israelites. And so here's this moment. And three of these descendants, these Peter, James, and John, these fishermen who were becoming fishers of men, were witness to the glorified presence of God in Christ. I mean, not, not in a million years could they have imagined seeing such a sight. Can you imagine? Peter, probably more like any of us would do, he tried to think of the right thing to say or to offer in this moment, and he offered to set up tents for them to stay a while. Although Luke says that Peter didn't know what he was talking about. He didn't realize what he was saying. Now, it's possible that by Luke saying that, that what, what he's saying is that Peter was sort of equating Jesus and Elijah and Moses on the same level. He's saying, let me set up a tent for you and for you and for you. And he didn't realize what he was saying. But I also think that what Luke may have been getting at is that Peter didn't understand what he was saying because Peter didn't grasp that in that glorious moment that they were in, it couldn't last They couldn't stay on that mountain. 
that this was a glimpse of the glory of Christ, a beautiful and heavenly glimpse, but it was a glimpse that would need to carry them through this painful and ugly hell that was to come. So let's just fast forward for a moment to the time that Jesus invites those same three disciples uh, to pray with them. But this time they don't, don't go up a mountain, they go into Gethsemane, a name that literally means press. It was a, a place where olives were, were pressed or crushed for their oil. And it wasn't a glorious, white, and shining appearance. But what was it? Instead, Luke says that Jesus was in agony. And he began sweating drops of blood. And Peter, James, and John then watched him betrayed. They saw him jailed and beaten and ridiculed and tortured and naked and murdered in those days ahead. What carried them through that? Luke says that Moses and Elijah were speaking to Jesus about his departure. That's the word he uses there, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. I think that's what they were talking about. And as far as this translation here, I'm not totally sure why they use the word departure because in the Greek, it's literally the word exodus. It's a nod to what Moses accomplished in freeing the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And, and so it's kind of just screaming this glorious gospel message to us that here is Jesus. Here is the new Moses who will lead all people out of bondage from sin and death. The transfiguration moment, see, was of incredible importance to these disciples. So much so that when Peter was getting ready to die, we read about this in his, his second epistle, he said that Jesus had told him that he, his time is coming to an end. And so he's writing this letter, and he's kind of, in this letter, he's establishing his credibility for these prophetic words that he's speaking and writing. He didn't go back to the resurrection. Like, you might think that, that Peter, in this last letter, what he would do to establish that credibility, would, he would say, I saw the, the risen Christ. I was there when Christ was raised from the dead. But he goes back to the transfiguration. He says, I was there on that mountain when Jesus was glorified and when we heard that voice from heaven. Isn't that interesting? See, I, I think if, if y'all are following me here, I think that this moment, this glorified son of God standing on the mountain with these great prophets of old, this is the image that we are to hold on to as we journey into the valley of Lent. And the reality is, Peter, that we can't stay on this mountaintop. Because in the world down below, the bright spaces are all too often darkened by sin and death and chaos and destruction. But we are people of the light. We are people of a new Moses, no longer enslaved to sin and death. And so the vision that we hold on to, like an athlete that's going through the grueling training, right, of, of their sport, the vision that we hold on to is this. It's the glorified Christ. It's the gospel that in the midst 
of, of the darkness of the world, we have a stunningly bright Savior. We have a glorified one who has descended to the dark spaces and has brought his light with him. So we don't fear the night. We, we enter into this Lenten season, things will turn dark. I think we'll literally begin wearing black, right? Uh, we will have a more somber service. Things will, uh, like Father Mark said, the atmosphere will change in the church. But we don't fear it. We don't fear moving into the season of penitence and fasting. But during Lent, we intentionally move into the wilderness with Jesus so that every dark space and corner of our, our lives and our hearts can be fully exposed to his light. And so we hold on to that vision. We hold on to this glimpse of glory to sustain us in this wilderness season together. So uh, I'm conscious of, and I I try not to tell uh, too many stories of my own life, especially too many of the same stories. I do end up doing that every time I preach, but I try not to. And um, if I could just share uh, one more time with you Um, about our second daughter, Annie. Annie lived about 45 minutes after she was born. Um, What happened was about 13 weeks into the pregnancy, we found out that this little baby uh, inside of Lynn could grow in the womb but could not grow outside of the womb. And added to that, with the diagnosis, were these statistically high numbers of miscarriages and stillbirths. And so it was an anxious time, just to say the, the least. And I won't stand up here and tell you that, that holding a, a dying baby in my arms was any sort of good or desirable alternative. But what I want you to know is that on the evening of, of that 13-week appointment, when I was in our apartment and I was just trying to process this huge, impossible news, I was just sobbing and, and heaving sobbing at the thought of it and the horror of it. But in the midst of it all, I had this thought that came to me. I imagined that I would see this baby and I would hold her and that her heart would be beating and that her lungs would be filling with air. And I, I don't know if that image was from God. I think it was. But there was no angel. There was no burning bush. There was no talking donkey But it was just this thought, this thought that lingered and pervaded and grew, and it held me. It it bolstered me up in one of the darkest seasons of my life. It held me and carried me, and I did hold Annie, and she did, her heart did beat, and her lungs did fill with air, and it was the hardest moment of my life, but it was also one of the most beautiful and glorious What about you? I mean, more than chocolates or caffeine or alcohol or Facebook or Netflix or, you know, when you think about what you will give up during Lent, are you also carrying an image with you that will sustain you? I know most of us don't have a clear picture of Jesus, of of what he looked like, much less what, what the transfigured Christ looked like, right? But you do have a picture, or you, you do have this sense of what wholeness is, don't you? You do have this sense of peace 
and joy and goodness and love. And those are the things that are indelible. Those are the lasting things that will sustain you in the season of fasting. And so I just, I encourage you, and I know the, the other clergy encourage you to, to pray for the image of God to be your companion during this Lent. Let that be what you take with you. So that more than the idea of, of weight loss or breaking bad habits, more, much more than that, that this time of fasting would form and would strengthen your resolve to live a life of complete devotion to the glorious and the risen Christ. Amen? So may the image of the glorious one carry you and strengthen you and help you to persevere as we enter into this holy season of Lent. May you find that you're not alone in the valley, that there is one who walks with you, and by his light all things are made good and all things are made right and true. And may we listen to the voice that declares the Son and bids us to listen to Him all the days of our life. Thanks be to God. Amen.